You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Mitchell Wine, and he is the person who is running a marathon watch out of Canada. It is a family business. Uh, Mitchell, welcome. Hey, thanks, Ariel, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love sort of dragging you out behind the desk to get you to talk about marathon, because once you learn a little bit about not just the marathon story, but your family history and watches, I mean, just having dinner with you is like a mini encyclopedia entry into the modern wristwatch, um, you know, history and industry. And it's, it's, you know, you live and breathe something that these collectors nerd out about all the time. Um, do you still like to tell these sort of like family watch industry stories or has it been, you've told it so many times you're ready for other things? No, you know what the, you know, it's funny about that. When you're saying that, I, I was really thinking it's like, so I grew up thinking it was normal. It was like, like, like it is so many, so many people have parents that have watch companies. Because <laughs> my all my cousins' families made watches, and uh, I knew other families in Switzerland, and they all made watches. But uh, it, it was, and it was that. I think a lot of the sons, as I know a lot of the sons, we all went into our father's businesses. We're third generation all around, really fourth generation, but third because my grandfather started Marathon Watch in uh, 1939. So I want to get back to that because, again, a lot of people don't even know how old the brand is. But just going back to this idea of growing up and being a kid in this industry. Now, here's the question. Today, Watches are basically luxury items, right? People don't buy them because they need to tell the time. They buy them for some other reason. Not all watches have to be luxury priced, but it's still a luxury item. You, when you were growing up, watches were still in the, the necessary mode. And so what was the perception of it when you were a kid? It was like, cool, my family makes watches. Those are awesome. Or is it like, oh yeah, my family makes watches. It's like better than toilets a little bit, you know, because like everyone needs one. It's kind of routine. Like, like where was it on the social interest level like did you want to brag to your buddies like my family makes watches or is it like kind of like a like a like oh it was like a high performing but not particularly sexy thing no well first of all you're right about you know it's an it's uh some people perceive it as an unnecessary luxury and you don't really use a watch to tell the time but we actually that is we're completely the opposite. We're, we actually make watches. So you could tell the time and tell it clearly and make sure that this watch is going to last, you know, long enough for two, gen- two generations. I mean, the thing is, you can't be caught in battle or even in a camping trip and not being able to have a way of telling the time. Who's going to say your iPhone is going to work? You, you, you can't say that, you know? One of the things that I should have clarified about Marathon is the fact that they are a genuine supplier of military watches. And I don't think there's any other companies today other than Marathon that gets orders by military agencies 
for watches. So Marathon is producing a tool, but Mitchell, you'll have to agree that in the larger context of watches, it used to be that, you know, the average watch company was producing a product to be a, a high-performance tool. To be, to be a company that makes a high-performance tool in the watch space today makes you the exception, not the norm, right? It's true. It's true. It's, it, 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 watchmaking, the watch, the watch industry has changed quite a bit since I've been a little kid. When I was a little kid, I think that, you know, not many people own two watches. Um, it took someone, uh, someone, someone a week's salary to, or two weeks' salary to purchase a watch. You had to work, you know, hard and save up and buy a watch in those days. And uh, of course, there was different grades of watch, but for work or a suit, you needed a, a decent watch. And if you could afford various watches for various styles, you did. But we didn't have. Uh, we didn't have any other ways of telling time except for clocks. And of course, we manufacture clocks, but that's another podcast. That's another so, podcast. <laughs> that's another podcast. Going back to how it was growing up and thinking about, you know, that my dad had a watch company, I just thought it was just something normal. You know, everybody, like, I, I grew up in Montreal, of course, and we had a big fur industry in those days. And a lot of friends of mine were in the fur, fur business. It's a very big industry in Canada in those days. And uh, I, I spoke to my friend Alan, and uh, it was like, yeah, everybody thought someone had an everybody had an uncle in the fur business somehow, but uh, that doesn't exist. And watchmaking you know, as an art doesn't exist really anymore, um, except, no, I, I shouldn't say as an art. I would say that. I mean, basically caring, only as an art. <laughs> when you, when my, same with me, but the thing is, no, the thing is when you sell a watch, you're actually married to the customer. In those days, for sure, your reputation could go down the hill if you didn't make a good quality watch. Nowadays, a lot of people buy a wristwatch that really has no value. They bought it in the flea market and they're happy with that. But you know what? There's no value to, to uh, purchasing a watch that you know, doesn't appreciate if you're putting at least a few hundred dollars in a watch. So let's go back to this notion of it being sort of a reliable tool. And I'm just sort of thinking about how marathon watches became popular in the mainstream to begin with. And we're talking about a watch that until the last decade or so wasn't available to be purchased by the general public. So if you had a marathon watch, it was issued to you in a military capacity and you were able to keep it and you, you sort of wore it into your civilian space. And we saw a lot of this, not just with marathon, but from World War One, World War II, Vietnam, especially people were coming home with their military watches and not taking them off, not just because it was a free watch or and they didn't have to buy another one, but because it was durable and it told time well. And they know that the sort of penny watches or the less expensive watches they could buy on the street simply, you know, couldn't couldn't match that. Is that is that true? Well, I think that the reason, first of all, when the U.S. government and the Canadian governments both purchased wristwatches from us. Um, those watches are issued as part of a uniform or a, a mission. And 
the watches really should be returned back to the U.S. government or the Canadian government because that's property of the government. Of course, we know that doesn't happen. A lot of people (laughs) do take their watches. No one's going to say no after somebody just gave their life for four years or eight years or who knows, 35 years. And the thing is, it was that watch was on that journey with you. You know, my nephew was in Afghanistan and he never took off his watch, you know, and even he had to go back to Afghanistan again. And, you know, it was like his lucky, it was so precious to him because it was with him on the journey, you know, looking at the time at night. Yeah, you you count on those things. And I think that's why people really keep possessions, a lot of possessions, because it was with you on that journey. And this watch uh, for the military actually was with a lot of people on j- many journeys. So um, they come back and now and then people want a new watch and they find out now through the internet, which they never would before because we ne- most of the time we didn't even put our name on the dial the watch. Through the internet, they found out where we are and want to buy a watch for their own personal use. It's like, so suddenly by allowing, we never sold online. And when we started selling online, people made the choice. And, you know, if people like our brand, they buy our brand. That's what happens when collector meets meets cool brand. You know, you were discovered by a collector community. You didn't even know, like, you had no idea that marathon watches would be appreciated by quote unquote collectors or hobbyists. And then you realized almost accidentally our well-priced, high-performing military watches happen to be the exact type of thing this enthusiast community enjoys, right? I can't believe it. Listen to this, Ariel. You know what? I couldn't believe it when I found out today. I was speaking to this guy who's a friend of mine who's also a watch collector, and he likes marathon watches. And uh, he said, do you know that your original Navigator and Steel <laughs> sells used on eBay for 1800 bucks?" And I thought to myself, <laughs> it's selling used for 1800 bucks. And when I think about it, because remember, I was, I was young and I was in the business and my father was working on that project and he was so afraid of overcharging or making too much money on the project. We sold it to the government for $55 and $58. Of course, there were huge contrasts. You used to get orders of 11,000, 6,000 at a time. And, uh, you know, my father was uh, very cognizant of not taking risk and uh, right. making sure we always made something well. And look at that. Our watches are on eBay. Those navigators and steel are on eBay for 1800 bucks. Imagine that. And my father sold for $55 and probably only made $5 a watch. <laughs> well, that's the thing. There's, there's just not a lot of that those stories in the industry. And and I think what's amazing to people is doesn't matter if the watch costs $55 at the time in the 80s or whatever, you couldn't buy it as a lay as a layperson. To own to one, it. you had to go through a special process. And those, I'm going to tell you, our watches, that Navigator in Steel, we sold it to the government for around $55 or $58. But I'll, I'll tell you what, even in those days, someone to make a watch that strong and that could handle that altitude, I, I'm telling you, they were charging $300, $200. Yeah. 
So we at gave time, good value. Wow. But remember, we were, when we produce a watch, it's really, we have three basic styles, different sizes, because that's the way humans come. So what is it that the military is actually looking for in a watch today? You and I have discussed this at length, but I'm sure the normal person who, who just considers the military is buying a watch probably is curious, like, what is the government seeking why in a watch? Why does the military need a watch? Yeah, well, yeah, why? Of course, but- they're not just for special missions. I mean, we have three types of, basically, three types of uh, watches. We have watches for land, which is for ground, meaning you don't Infantry. have to go, uh, yeah, you don't have to parachute. You just have to be able to sell the time. And you don't have to dive in the water. So it has to be waterproof to a little bit. And but it has to really be able to take a magnetic beating, shock and vibration, because that's what happens when you're in battle. But it not just happens when you're in battle. You know, disasters happen and we're a Canadian company and we we, we know what it is. Like, you know, the military in both the US and Canada, when there's a country that needs help or there's been an earthquake, you know, our country's come to help not only each other but we we help uh, other nations and that's what military has become so mm-hmm. you know uh it's not just about battle i, I think sure, people and don't that's, realize that's an important that. distinction well you try to make that point because you're, yeah it's not just a, it's not just a gun a gun toting watch no it's the field watch it's about yeah. wearing the watch in the field and your field might be in a hospital full of COVID patients. And and it's very important when you're taking the pulse of someone. You can't hold a phone. You have to have something you could disinfect. And that's where our field watches come into play. You could spray them down, wash them in the washing machine. From a PR perspective, again, I just sort of want to clarify why you make that point, is that, you know, you are a modern company full of modern-minded people. To a degree, the idea that, you know, your watches are just worn during war is not appealing universally. Some people love that stuff, but it's actually not true. And you want to remind people there's a bunch of, like you said, search and rescue, law enforcement, uh, people in healthcare, uh, a variety of other types of needs that are peaceful uh, or life-saving and that they, you know, they, they have also a similar use for the products and things like that. And today... You know, it's also just sort of the world of outside adventure, your all-purpose sport watch for hiking, for skiing, for bicycling, for diving. I mean, I, I've done a lot of those activities, you know, with a marathon watch and its ability to universally transcend all these activities. I mean, that's what really makes a classic. It's the ability to have something that is able to equally fit in a lot of places. And right now we're in the white dialed um, G-Star on the bracelet. And now you also have something that's I don't want to call it a dress watch, but you could definitely wear, wear it with a suit and no one would bat an eye. No, you're right. The, the reason why you could wear it with a suit, you, nobody would wear that watch, actually. It's interesting you say that because nobody, when I invented that watch, when I designed that watch, nobody would wear a watch that big. They, they, they thought it was like old and clunky and it's like, why do you have such a big watch? Well, we had to make the water resistance to a certain point. And I'm not selling to any jewelry store in the public. We're making this watch just for the military because they need it for search and rescue. And you know what? The reason we did that was because 
I listen to, I, I, I listen to the people in uh, the Department of National Defense about what they really do need. And that's why it's big, you know, to turn, we need a big, we needed a chunky, big turning bezel. People are wearing gloves in, in such cold water and uh, they need to be turning that turning bezel. It's very hard if it's flat on the, uh, on the case, you know? And so we're talking about a watch that one of the distinctive elements for those people that don't know the GSAR or, or otherwise the general search and rescue, that's what GSAR stands for. Um, it has a, a relatively uh, steep bezel, maybe about double the width of, of sort of a normal bezel in terms of how high it is. And that is designed, like Mitchell said, for you to be able to operate it wearing gloves without really looking at it and things like that. And these days, it doesn't seem out of place, given the fact that watch sizes are tend to be larger. And again, I want your opinion here because you've been in this industry obviously longer than me. I believe that people like larger watches today because it serves like a larger canvas. Watches are art. They're meant to be self-expressive. A smaller watch, albeit comfortable, doesn't have the same ability to protect a mess, project a message because it's hard to see. So because you're trying to have people across the room notice your watch, a bigger watch just serves that value better. What do you think? I, I think you're correct. Where the jewelry watch, you know, uh, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, that people use bigger watches because they had a bigger palette and it was easier to see. Also, fashion came out. Fa fashion in the watch industry has really, it's part of the jewelry and watch industry. Uh, and uh, when Dolce & Gabbana started doing military camouflage wear and a lot of designers started using military influence and big box shoulders, I, I think that people were looking to, you know, that butch military feel. And uh, so our watches fell into fashion into some uh, circles, which is great. Um, because I think they're actually quite nice. And uh, it looked like a potato when I first developed it, but it doesn't. <laughs> and uh, the fact that everybody's copied my designs, uh, there's a lot of uh, brands that copied my crown. I can't believe they copied my crown, but, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad I did something well. And I'm glad that's a lasting design. You know what? It's funny. My dad had also a lasting design, which was the Navigator watch, which is a flat watch. But that, right. I think, is another story. What I want to tell you is that the, I think the reason for Marathon success actually is fivefold. But really, we listen to our customers. And, uh, you know, my dad was always in Richmond, Virginia. He, he, he was designing stuff. And I remember he used to speak to the engineers and he brought me when I was young and uh, we won a bronze medal from the U.S. Uh, Defense Supply Center in Richmond. And uh, even that day after we went for meetings and we're, we're, I mean, we're developing special stopwatches. We developed quite a few things. And the reason why I was able, my dad was able to develop that famous navigator watch was because 
there, there, there was someone engineering Kelly Air Force Base, and this is what they needed in a flight watch. And with myself, it was the Canadian government. They really, <clears throat> they really needed to number one save money and not spend a lot of money on dive search and rescue watches, but. I, I had an issue. We started supplying them. It was a different case. And, you know, it was like a blessing. The, the tooling broke and we had to make new tooling. So I decided we'll go with a whole new design. And uh, I went and spoke to a few friends that I knew out east in Halifax. And uh, they all gave me their input. And it was like an oh, yeah, yeah moment and a lot of beer. Interesting. And uh, that was great. And I had the feedback I needed. And I, and I actually, I think in life, a lot of people don't listen to the user. Because if you're producing okay. a product, you, you're actually solving a problem. You know what I mean? If someone uh -huh. is hard to see, you have to make a big clock. You know, if, if someone is, has the necessity to have that tool of time underwater... And they, they, they keep on turning the bezel and it's slipping in their hand. It's no good. So let's say the other side of that. I think and I don't disagree with you, but you have another way of thinking about it, which is if you don't have an autocratic leader at the top of a company making creative decisions, nothing good ever gets done. And so we have certain companies out there that I guess you could say they hear what the consumers are saying. Their ability to listen might be, I don't know, um, it made more challenging by the fact that there's no sort of autocratic person. So you listened, but if it wasn't for you being able to be decisive and say, let's do it, I think you need both of those things together. That's true. And my father in those days really was uh, the, the leader of the corporation. My father's still alive. He's 89 and I still brief him every day. He gets briefed a few times a day and he reads five newspapers, you know, and uh, I fought with my father because I believe this is right. And my father listened to me because my father always believed in new ideas. And I, my father always told me that to keep a company fresh and to keep a company successful, you always have to have young people get new young people to have a new generation in our in our building alone we have we have many multi-generational families working for the company yeah and in switzerland we have two generations with a third probably going to join um and when we work together every day we're a team we're, we are like a family you know i mean we're, we're large, so we have, but even our e-commerce even our e team is such a fantastic team together, a creative department, and, you know, we help each other. And I think it's because we respect each other. Well, you are, you are, you know, you are one of those watch companies today that is the family business where you, you sort of, the whole strategy is longevity. And there's a few of you out there, very few in North America, um, doesn't represent the corporate-owned brands at all. But there is this handful of these family-owned companies in the watch space still, and it seems to be where that's where a lot of the charm comes from. You know what I mean? Yeah, because yeah, it's our name. At this point, at this point, you know, 
it's our name and uh, it's our pride. It, you know, to take a company from one generation to the next, it, this is just being handed over to me for a certain amount of time. So what, what, what makes it challenging to make even more creative decisions? Because you said your father sort of validates this idea of doing new things is correct. Yet, if you look from the side, you know, the Marathon Company has been relatively conservative in the products. That's not to say you don't have a lot of ideas, but again, just looking at it from a consumer, it's been a very sort of steady, um, you know, slow period of releasing new things like that. Is that intentional? Is it sort of nece- necessary that way? Like, what stops you from being even more wild and creative? Because if there's not a need for something new, there's no reason to do it. Okay, interesting point. So elaborate on that. So people, you see, people see from the outside, oh, you know, there hasn't been a new model uh, watch or stopwatch in the one button series or uh, a chrono series being released. But in the meantime, what people don't see is that we are making the product better. The product outside is great, and so is the inside. But the inside, the motor we're making greater every day. The quality of our hands is better. We're even, we've improved even the quality of our paint, and it didn't need to be improved. I, I, I mean, if you notice your G-SAR, if you have that Arctic G-SAR, it's not just a white. It's an Arctic white. It's like slightly, mm-hmm. slightly bluish gray in a tinge in it, maybe half a percent. But that's that's the white. There's very variations on the white. And uh, we're pretty nitpicky. Eh? I mean, it's just like, you know, solving problems, using a new a new oil, you know, for the reverse um, sorry, I, I can't remember the part, but we were, we had a meeting about a part that we could improve by changing the oil we use. And, you know, these are things that people don't realize what a real watchmaking company does. You know, a lot of people have been able to get into the watch business because of the evolution of quartz movements. And it's so cheap to manufacture products, I guess, in China or in other countries to have someone else manufacture and just put your name on it. Well, that's not really being a watch factory or a watchmaking. You're actually having someone else make those watches for you. Some people may say that because we use E10 Salida movements, but they're made for us to our specifications. Yeah. And we do we bring them to life in our factory by by adjusting and cleaning and putting in another special oil and making sure the inca blocks are set and you know the testing that goes into making a good watch that you don't want to get returned to you you know it's like a good car you test it and test it so it doesn't come back and and it used to be that when people were a little bit more sophisticated about the mechanical things they bought they would know this these days, the average consumer doesn't understand a lot about mechanics for forgivable reasons, but it would be it would be very difficult to determine the difference between a company that sold um, essentially a marketed product that they hired someone else to build for them versus a company that does it themselves. And this enthusiasm and this sort of watch hobby, part of it is just learning about which brands are which. And it isn't until you investigate, you know, you can't look at the outside marketing, you can't just go to the website to learn some of these things. It's actually a very drawn out process of discovery, which is one of the reasons that, you know, 
the barrier to entry to be becoming a real watch collector is high. And as a result, I think that some of the smartest and most interesting people around the world end up becoming watch hobbyists because it's just it just the the the, re, the ability to get into it is is has a high intellectual bar. You know what I mean? It, you know what? It, it's it's really a fascinating uh, business. And when you study it, see, when I was a kid, I used to also I used to collect stamps and I used to collect coins. Okay, stamps were more interesting. You know, in the olden days, it used to be one cent stamp and two cent stamp, five cent stamp, eight cent stamp. And you had all different types of pictures on them from different countries. And uh, with our watches, it's, and with most companies, and they don't say it, but over the years, you got the same model watch, but the inside changes because you're constantly improving it. So if you do buy, if you do buy a, a, a marathon watch that was produced in 1943, let's say, um, the movement's durable and it's good, but it's not as durable as the brand new movements that are made today. And that's why Boeing will not make engines. What they do is they buy the engines. You could order your airplane and then you could order the type of fuselage you i mean the insides you want but you could also choose a maybe a pratt and whitney engine or you could use rolls royce engine and right. uh, that's why we choose not to make our own engine it's a whole you other know, industry having it's, a different uh, industry. It's, it's it's another industry and we're so fortunate because we're 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 still a family business and we're still uh, in a small, Not it's not a small village, Le Chaudfant. It is the watchmaking really capital, I believe, of Switzerland. But the, the, the people that own Salida, I've known for 30 years, I think, uh, Mr. Garcia. And you know, well, you know what? He was always so nice to me. Always treated me, even though when we were, you know, years ago, we didn't have uh, uh, big quantities so much from him. Um, most of our movements were from elsewhere, mm -hmm. but we built that relationship and had discussions about different types of movements and, you know, uh, in war situations where I needed help out and he helped me out and uh, how we worked even, you know, everybody has issues with some uh, products. You know, you never know. Uh, you might have a ratchet wheel with uh, a defective ratchet wheel uh, where p uh, cogs come off and you have to recall, you know, 500 watches because there's 500 movements out there with parts in them. But that is honoring that when you do that, you honor your brand because you take care of your customer. You don't sell something that's going to, something's going to happen. And you feel the same way about the people that buy the marathon watches that you, you take care of. Them. Uh, exactly. Exactly. I want to be, I want to be, I, I want to treat my, I want to treat our customers the way I expect to be treated. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. 
Right now, the blog to watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the blog to watch Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The blog to watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the blog to watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. I'm going to go back to the world of fashion for a moment because, again, I think that I want to bring up some of the larger context about how a watch, you know, again, like the GSAR, has a deeper level of, of sort of fashion acceptance than may immediately uh, come to mind, especially if you're a watch collector. And a watch that comes to mind is the Chanel J12. Now, if you put the Chanel J12 and the GSAR next to each other, they do look like very, very close cousins. The, the, the GSAR came first. Um, and, you know, Chanel, obviously, you know, one of the biggest names of fashion around the world, has uh, this very popular collection since the early 2000s. I think 2000 was the first J- uh, J12. It's ceramic. Of course, yours are steel. But otherwise, it feels like they're making a fashion version of what you've been making for a long time. And it's interesting that if you compare these products, if it wasn't for what Marathon does in that, in that design, there probably never would have been something like the Chanel J12. You're probably right. But... Fashion is such an important part of our world. You know, without fashion, you don't have color, you don't have design, you don't have change of industry. I mean, if everything was just the same color all the time, you know, that's a huge industry. And I think military fashion is as well a type of fashion. And something that you can't say, no, 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 it isn't. It's true. That's why there's a lot of companies that make military style watches. You know, even though they don't supply the military, people like that military style. And there's great when you have duality, actually, in a watch and a beauty of a watch. And I'm going to tell you our watches actually are quite beautiful when I look at it now, especially with the bracelet, Um, when you wear it with a suit. Now, this whole era of marathon watches becoming as fashionable as they are practical has required the company to make a lot of changes, especially in terms of marketing and communication. Um, you know, tell people a little bit about what, what's that been like? You know, some of the struggles of not having to change what you make, but having to change how you sell what you make because the world is adapting and you need to, you know, move with the times. You're right. Basically, we had to change the way we communicate. Not only communicate to the outside world, but also communicate to each other which meant we enhanced new technology during the pandemic. We, it was as if not only were we on our computers as a team with each other, it was like we were with each other at work all the time. It's like, how are you? How's your kids? And you know what? We became very close because of this pandemic. And um, that's why we really do have a younger generation taking care of social media. We have a great team for social media. Um, and uh, I, I, and they're communicating to new audiences and audiences that never knew about us. And 
communicating to our existing uh, public, our, our existing clientele. Uh, and I, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I feel like I'm work. I'm on a team. You know, of course, we had a big mm-hmm. hockey game here in Canada. The Canadians against the Maple Leafs. It was, a, you know, <laughs> it's like the only thing you'd hear about. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, I feel like we're on a team, and we have our communications department. And Kate's writing, you know, look at this, and you know, and she's taking our uh, products and taking, you know some snapshots from uh, Julian and uh, just uh, saying something really nice about the watch or getting these beautiful images from photographers. And you know me, I'm a photography nut. And I think Kate is too. And uh, we, we have people sitting in pictures of their watches and different lives and different settings and different stories. And we, we feature them because not only are they beautiful photographs, but that's someone's watch that came on their journey with them. And it it doesn't matter if your journey was to Afghanistan, your journey might've been raising five kids as a single mother. And, you know, you wore a marathon watch through that, you know, and having to think about all this is a new thing that the company has to contend with that is a, has nothing to do with making watches, but has everything to do with selling watches. Right, because really we... Um, my friend Sandy said something to me. And you've met Sandy. I had her over for dinner once. Yeah, I remember. Um, I, uh, she said, if you don't define your brand, your customer will define it for you. True. And our brand... Our, our, our brand... How I define my brand is a tool watch. It's made by a team of really nice people all throughout the world. And um, we care about what we produce. And we hold Canadian values. We hold human values. And uh, we're very proud in what we make. And I think if you go along, if you follow your dream, if you believe in what you're doing, you could be nothing but a success at what you do. And, I, and I'm glad I did. My other dream was acting, but I couldn't do that and make a living. <laughs> I mean, no, no question, kidding. Mitchell, you care about making good watches and you take it so seriously, more so than I would say most people that, that come into a family business. Your sense of duty and responsibility is commendable to say the least. But going back to the thing about having to sell watches, and again, this is maybe it's almost an intellectual question because it's not like there's turning back, but it used to be that companies that made watches didn't sell watches. They would sell them into distribution and then that distribution would go to retailers and that's how people would, would buy it. In your case, you know, a military client, but it doesn't really matter. It's the same type of thing. You weren't, nece- you weren't having to sell to the end consumer. Um, do you like that selling to the end consumer has become a responsibility of a watch brand these days? Or maybe would you prefer the old model where you make the watches and then the market kind of handles it after that. You just sort of sell them. No, you know what? One of the best things that ever happened in the world is that we've been freed from the bricks and mortar store as it is today. Interesting. As it is, was yesterday. They're changing, but the issue is in the olden days, 
brands would get into a store if maybe they knew the buyer or maybe the president of the uh, or uh, uh, of of the department store or different things and maybe the buyer wasn't wasn't really being buying on the quality they were just buying on the look with and whether people wanted to have let's say let's say one one let's say uh 7-Eleven only carried crunchy bars but everybody wanted o henry bars too but let's say 7-Eleven did want to have anything to do with you know o henry or any other bars so the thing is people weren't getting what they really wanted online shopping has allowed people to read people's reviews, what people really think. But it's great because we could read what people think. And what's very important is I could read why people are happy or unhappy. So if someone, ha if I read a review and I see that someone's unhappy with one of our products because this happened or this happened, we have to contact that person if they haven't contacted us. Or, or we, because, and if we see issues, we have to say, hey, we're having an issue here. Let's make it better. That's why you, that's why it's so good online shopping. And people could, people could speak their voice if they like a product or not. I've bought, I've been buying online for quite a while. Yeah, I, I buy on Amazon. And um, you know what? I've bought products that I was very let down with, but I've bought products that I've been so happy with. And I think it's good to give feedback. So you're saying that in the traditional model, the distributor, i.e. the retailer in many instances, had too much power and was not giving you enough market data. That's the old bricks and mortar. And not that's the online, basically the but, is good, but, you, but, but the thing is, listen, I love bricks and mortar and I shop in bricks and mortar. Um, when I when I buy shoes, or actually when I uh, listen, I buy other people's brands watches. I collect watches as well, and you know what? I, I like the bricks and mortar feeling. Um, I, I I like going to Cartier very much. I like certain brands such as Ferragamo um, because the quality is good, and uh, I. Uh, I, I know that um, I could count on the quality and uh, for sure I could count on customer service. You know, I had to buy a few gifts at Ferragamo and some, you know, you know what? One of the scarves I bought, um, I, I bought it for someone special to me and uh, there was a little catch in it, which they didn't know. And immediately they exchanged it and that's like, the a, way de like, a, de like a defect i mean yeah just a little stitch out yeah yeah in a corner but it is something it's a defect you know so i mean it's, it's look it's an interesting thing marathon has full steam ahead embraced e-commerce and i think in a lot of ways for for good you have other retailers it's not the only way that you sell but you've made you've, you've made the decision that this type of distribution distribution model works very well for you because your consumers want to talk to you. You want to talk to your mm -hmm. consumer and while you're having that conversation with them, it makes a lot of sense to, to sell to them. And I think it's actually an amazing thing 
But the existence of the, we're fortunate because there's so many of our products ex, that exist on the planet that people could touch and feel and see how they feel. You see, the thing is, if I was buying a watch, sometimes I, I, I think I would be hesitant on buying it until I wear it. But I guess that's okay, like for a, very, uh, a very expensive watch. But the thing is, I think that bricks and mortar has its place. And it, it's important that we do have our watches in certain bricks and mortars so people can touch our watches and feel them. So people have that opportunity. Because there are people like me who do like to touch and feel something before they buy it. No, absolutely. But how does that translate into the decisions you make running marathon you touch and feel the products yourself you're a very tactile guy the colors the way the bracelet sits on your wrist how all the whole composition works together so important to you so have important you, have you stopped products from being released have you you know what how does that affect the the sort of you know you are the gatekeeper it has to pass by you before it goes to market um you know tell consumers about the types of things that never reach them because you're carefully attuned aficionado's eye is on it yeah <laughs> it costs a lot of money we uh <laughs> had a very big delay on one item we had a very big delay on one item we introduced our anthracite it's a special uh coding method for our uh blackening of our watches but we don't make it completely black it's an anthracite so it has like a half percent yeah, I got that. I'm, I'm, I'm holding it right now, and I, I, I've seen a lot of other black coatings. Not all black coatings are created equal, by no means. By no means. So, what we did was, I, I decided we're going to make 500 of them. They cost a lot of money to make, and our, it was we were new to the dipping process, and all the links are put together, and then you dip and you put it through an electric infusion and chemicals, whatever, to, to get this black effect on the uh, metal. And uh, this is for the ele an electroplating yeah, process. I won't tell you everything because I wouldn't give you our company secrets in public. But the thing is, there's a fancy schmancy way of getting this done. And when we did it, everybody thought it was acceptable. Not everybody. There's somebody else, David, who uh, worked for Marathon. And uh, it was just like when you bend it back as far as you can, you could see some parts which it weren't, wasn't coated. And right. we already made the bracelets and we could not uncoat it. And the latch on it, whenever you open and close the latch, after around 400 or 500 openings and closings, it was already it starting to show. Yeah, it was scratching it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, somebody on the team, I remember saying, oh, my God, Mitchell. <laughs> she said, watches of $2,000 aren't even this quality. You only sell this watch for, in those days, uh, we were planning on selling that watch. I think that watch sells for 1800 or 1500 but that wasn't the point. The thing is, I, I would that. always know that I didn't do the best. And the only way to do it was to take each and every link and go through the process separately, not do it after it's finished, and then put it together. But if I wanted to put it together, 
without any even further pressure or damage, what we used was screws on every every link and it had to be hand screwed every single link to put it together. And I changed the clasp to a new type of butterfly clasp that was also specially coded in separate instances. And uh, guess what? It came out beautiful. The cost of doing it almost doubled. But now people uh, are reviewing it. We released it finally. and uh, Oh, the black bracelet is out? You know the black. I didn't send you a black bracelet. No. Oh, it's amazing. Too bad you can't see it through the phone. <laughs> Here, I'll hold well, it up. <laughs> oh, great, great. No, send send one over and uh, yeah. Of course I will. It's you just, didn't it's know. Been so much dr- no, because there's been so much drama about it for years. Because I've known what the problem is. I know. Is. I've seen so many poorly done black coding jobs over the years of the brand. I didn't want to be that have. person. I didn't want to be the I, person. I know what you're afraid of. That's the thing. Most consumers are like, I don't know what he's worried about. I know what you're worried about. So that's when why I've a lot of that, companies won't do it. Yeah, because it's a pain in the ass and it's expensive. And it takes, you know, but you know, Mitchell did it. He went through the process. You had the headaches. Okay, so here's a here's a related question. But we did when it you for a process at, because we needed it to have no reflection whatsoever. But who 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 are you trying to satisfy? That 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 was for special. That was actually for certain special forces, and okay. I wanted to satisfy their needs. When when it's when you see something the wrong color, something like that, even if there's no special forces team to tell you you got it right, you did it wrong. Is there maybe like a, a family member or something like that in your mind? Well, you want to know something? I've studied watchmaking and watch design for so many years. But I've also, you know, I told you about uh, Mr. Dreyfus, Anthony Dreyfus. Um, right. He helped me set up uh, our factory in Switzerland many years ago. And uh, he taught me so much about the watch business, about making sure that quality is there and how to test for it. You know, don't leave a rock unturned. And... Uh, what was the original question? No, I, I guess the question is this. This industry has excellence because of people who adhere to standards. I'm going to get a little sort of intellectual here, but just sort of hear yes, me out. Yes, you're right. right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what you're getting to. And, and you're right. We are getting to specific standards, but what are these standards? Well, what I do is I use, there's quite a few important specifications published by different governments. And honestly, I've read so many of them and studied so many of them that I could get a general overview about the quality that's needed to get us to that point to make that tool, you know, to make that screwdriver that will not get burrs at the end. You know, uh, that, that our watches are tools and that's, I think we have to make sure that our watches meet standards and processes. So I'm known as a actually uh, someone in the know of watch industry, and I've had governments speak to me about what they could do for certain things that they need. And uh, it's um, interesting, and we keep ourselves to high standard. And I think it's good to keep yourself to high standard. 
My psychological diagnosis, if I'm going to play amateur therapist here, and this is not a bad thing, is that when you have that You won't be the first therapist, okay? Yeah, of course. (laughs) There's somebody in your history. Like for me, a lot, it's my grandfather. You know, he he passed away in 2009. He's not here anymore. But I still want to like satisfy his standards. He set a bar in my mind. Even though he's not here, I feel like I'm trying to satisfy the standards I believe he may have. And that keeps me making, let's say, pretty decent decisions. So I believe that maybe it's similar for yourself. Maybe that person's still here, your father. Maybe it's somebody from the past that you're still thinking about wanting them to be proud of your decision because they they set a standard which is important to you. And the watch industry needs that because without that, you wouldn't have good watches. I, I, I've seen... Uh... Being in the watch business, I've been to other people's factories, other family factories, and uh, I, I was always impressed by the way we did things compared to some other people, with the exception of a few. There's a few uh, companies in the show de fonds, which I have to tell you, the standard of quality and what we do to test our product is un- unbelievable. You know, um, and I think that my father always demanded, you know, such good quality of himself because he he thought of the person that was going to use it because the person that was going to use it wasn't wearing it with a tuxedo, you know, going to a dinner party. Basically, we're giving it to someone and their life might depend on the watch. Someone's life. And that's where I think we look at our watches a bit different than other companies. Yeah, I don't think like your average swatch engineer is thinking like, this might have to save somebody. But for Marathon, doesn't matter who's wearing it. That's inseparable from the brand ethos, it seems. True. I think that's the way it is with a lot of people which manufacture for government. I mean, we, we do clocks. I mean, we are, are, if you go into many government buildings here in Canada you'll see our clocks. And the, the reason, you know, is because I think we're reliable. I think we're great value for the money, to be honest with you. I shouldn't say that, but I really do. Yeah, but what's a better slogan? We're great value for the money or watches to save lives? I don't know. We used to have a store in Toronto called Ed's Warehouse, uh, Honest Ed's. Like that. I, think, I think every brand needs a good slogan. Yeah, ours is a marathon best in the long run. Yeah, I remember, I which is great. I, I know. I, I thought that was good. And my dad loved that slogan. I never asked him if it was my grandfather or him who came up you with You should slogan. put it on every watch, like on the case back or something like that. You know People what? That's a great idea. Right? Actually, well, not well, you know what? It's I'm gonna tell you, it's hard to write anything on the back of our watches except all we have to put on so much information on the back of a watch the contract number different license numbers and different so many different things we have to put on in accordance I know, it's with awesome. that yeah i, I know i don't 26 millicuries uh, that, that that's the amount of uh yeah for the radio amount of tritium we use in uh the tubes on our dials i think there's room here for best in the long run i'm just saying that's true it could be. So what are you hearing about, uh, Ariel? I'm going to interview you. So tell me. Oh, sure. What are you hearing in the watch industry? Anything new and upcoming? Why don't you tell me a bit about that? 
Yeah, okay. So we have a few minutes left here. I guess I can go over that. Um, I'll just put back on my marathon because I'm sitting there admiring I'm not in the fashion business, but I want to tell you what I think really should come back. Okay. But it's not, uh, you know, we used to supply jewelry stores as well in the 60s and 70s. So what should come uh, back? A big thing, a a, a pendant watch. A pendant watch. Like Like around the neck? Yeah, I think a man or a woman could wear a pendant watch. If a man or woman it's could like wear a kind of heavy, I like it kind of swings around a little bit, like it turns into a little bit of a weapon. Like you go, you go to like hug somebody and you just bonked him in the head or something like that. Oh, like those bonkers! Remember those clankers we used to use on the string? You don't remember that? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I do. Uh, no, I think you it's think great. you think that's the next the next bastion. A uh, nice leather uh, chain or gold chain and uh have a nice uh i i told you i think the wearable compass i think the wearable compass is the thing for people who aren't quite ready to wear a wristwatch but don't want to have empty wrists the wearable compass is kind of an interesting in between but we have a wearable compass a high-end one i love i love the wearable compass oh you ed, don't like our wearable compass no ed ed has it as has but it's it's not it no he has a clip compass he, a clip compass is a compass that clips actually onto your uh, yeah, yeah. band. No, no, the, the it, it got sent to him, so he he he's wearing it because he likes it. I think. No, but there's one you actually could wear. I know, I know, and it's cool, but it's like you wouldn't wear it to like a cocktail party. You know what I'm saying? I know, Iman. You have to wear it with a watch, or else it's empty. Yeah, but a wearable think- compass is a good compass idea. Bracelet. Compass bracelet, fancy metal bracelet, whole well, you lot know of things. Did, you know who did that? Seiko did that. Seiko did that? Just a compass? No, what they did was, on the metal bracelet, they had a link that was made around four times or three times as large as yeah, the Yeah, did that too. Link. In the 80s, right? And you could pop out a, a little 24-hour uh, watch. And yeah. Put in. You have a choice of doing that or putting in a compass, or and there was an and uh, there was something else. Um, boy, we used to sell them. I think we still the curve meter. There was a curve, and you could put a curve meter in there. Because a curve meter is great for uh, when you read maps. A curve meter is amazing. Do it. Do it for marathon. I promise you, you will have market success. It might not be overnight, but if you create for the overnight, V-Star, this bracelet took me three years to come out. <laughs> Yeah, we could uh, do uh, it. Uh, well, GMT, a compass, and that other module that comp- that you know map reading one. Curve a meter. A curve a meter. Have those, those options. Make. make them look cool. I think that from a fashion perspective, it's because it's an extra extra little thing. Breitling just brought those things back. I'm telling you, it's gonna be, it's gonna it's gonna do great. I just really think it's gonna do great for you. Okay, and if they don't. What are we going to do with it? No, actually, I think it'll do well because, you know, it's sort of like a Swiss Army knife. Exactly. But here we have a watch with the compass and the time, no electronics, and uh, you could also have your dual, uh, you could have another time zone on a little pocket watch that, like a little, I'd say a six millimeter I got a I got a complication. If you want to do a new if you want to do a new complication, you want to hear this complication. Is it complicated? No, it's actually <laughs> it's amazingly it's amazingly simple. Okay. Okay. 
So just hear me out. And I wa- but I okay. want you to take this seriously. Okay. Okay. You, you asked me for market feedback. So I'm giving you ideas time. Okay. So you know that sometimes there's watches with an internal rotating bezel. Yes. Okay. So I would say make an internal rotating bezel that has this function. You adjust it based upon the season. And then it turns into a, uh, like basically a day night indicator. Because over the season, the day night changes. And so you manually adjust it, knowing that it only has to be every few days. So that if you're hiking or something like that, you have a very simple but effective like sunrise sunset indicator that you know how much daylight is left. I know how to do it. Yeah. But what you need is one extra crown, of course. Yeah. What what you need to do is divide that uh, internal ring like a slide rule. And I yeah, just gave away the secret. No, no, I already, already thought about that. If anybody rule. else comes up with that, that's, that, that's they listen to your show. How do you like that? No, but but I, I think that, you, look, you can beat them to market. Make no, it I, think, I think actually we could do that. It's very simple. It's actually a great idea. Of course, we yeah. couldn't do it. It'll have to be hand adjusted or else it's too complicated. No, 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 hand adjusted for sure. But the idea is this, people can look and every week or two, they can just adjust it. But the idea is that when you're hiking that day, you forget what it is. So it's something that you sort of, you do before your hike. And again, it goes back to the thing, there's no electronics, blah, 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 blah. It's just a mechanical oh, so you set it just for the day, just like a navigator. That is a brilliant idea. You're right. Yeah, yeah. actually, that's great. So you know when sunset is through yeah so you don't end up in the dark on a hike exactly and you know and and also there's ways of having an indicator in there where you know when to turn back right i'll call it i'll call it like sort of the turn back timer the idea is that let's say you want to go on a four-hour hike okay and you also that's important because you know the sun's going down at the two-hour mark you need to be reminded to turn back you could easily forget about it what about the breadcrumbs we need the breadcrumbs on the trail, just like Hansel and Gretel. You could you could do that. But a, <laughs> I could do could that. Back, you could have a backpack that was a, a sustainable breadcrumb thing. You know, like just little like droppings to come out. But that's a different product altogether. Okay. Well, let someone else do that. You see what I mean? Like these are things you could do that would have, that would make sense in the brand, but could have new stuff. Uh-huh. There's a lot to do. And you know what? That's what makes, makes life interesting. You know, my dad said something. My dad's 89 and he's so active. And, you know, people thought that, you know, oh, he's forgetting a lot. But you know what? We all forget. The thing is, you have to keep your mind active. My dad always said, keep your mind active. It doesn't matter what you do. Do something. And he always said to me, try to work as long as you can. Because, you know what? You have somewhere to go to and you engage with all different types of people, younger people, you get new ideas and it keeps you alive. And it did. And that's why my dad is very uh, social. He, 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 he actually, you know, is very social, of course, with my mom, but he's learned and he reads and watches, he watches old movies and stuff. And I think that by keeping his mind active and doing things, not letting people do it for him, he, he, he's had a great life. And your dad's fun to talk to. He has a lot of good opinions. He is fun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Mitchell, we've, we've about exceeded our time. We'll have to have you back on another episode where uh, I think I can think of a lot of interesting topics we could talk about, especially some of the family history you have and some of the details about 
the historic watch industry. Uh, but this has been Mitchell Wine. He runs Marathon Watches. You can go to their website, marathonwatch.com. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Been fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?